Nihilismus. If heartaches brought fame in love's crazy game, I'd be a legend in my time. If they gave gold statuettes for tears and regret, I'd be a legend in my time. But they don't give awards, and there's no praise or fame for hearts that are broken. For love that's in vain. If loneliness met world acclaim, everyone would know my name. I'd be a legend in my time. If heartaches brought pain in love's crazy game. I'd be a legend in my time if they gave gold statuettes. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in studio, live and in person, Lynn McMahon. Thank you, Lynn. Thank for, you for joining joining us in the studio here. Oh, I'm delighted um, to be here. It's it's wonderful to have you on this beautiful um, this beautiful day. And and I just realized Johnny Cash seems good at any time, but then it seemed a bit um, a bit somber for how beautiful it is. Um, but then again, there. then again, it's such a good lead into poetry because it's <laughs> it's heartbreak and it's. Uh, and it's rumbling. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, you know, we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll we'll go with the heartbreak, and we'll probably we'll chat in between, so it won't be all um, heartbreak and misery. There'll be sunny moments. I don't know. Why am I <laughs> promising things? We'll just see whatever happens, right, Lynn? Right, we'll, make a, we'll make a go of it. Um, no matter what happens, okay. <laughs> here's to live radio and, and conversation rather That's than right. um, a barrage of questions, right? Um, so, so we were talking right before we came on the air here about um, uh, how I usually read the bios from the back of the book. And it sounds like a lot of things have changed recently from y- your bio because you've, you've, you've moved. So, right. so let's say, hmm, I will say Lynn McMahon um, has just moved to Chicago. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so she no longer longer teaches English at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, and her books of poetry include Faith, uh, published in 1988, uh, The Devolution of the Nude uh, in 1993, The House of Entertaining Science, which I hold in my hands in 99, I believe, and the most recent, Sentimental Standards, uh, in, and that was 2004. Right. Um, That's all right. And you'll be reading from the, a couple of the collections for us uh, later on in the program? Yes, I will. I'd be happy to. Thank you. And you are, you've are you been the writer-in-residence this week at That's the right. university. That's right. And, and I've been um, uh, meeting scores of people, many of whom are interested in more than one genre, many of whom do astonishing work in both fiction and poetry, which is an, really an odd mix, I, I think. People who do poetry will often do creative nonfiction yes. or essays. Sometimes I'll do playwriting. But to easily move from short story and novel to poetry, that's rare. That's rare. I think, um, gosh, the last person who really did it at the top of his game in both senses was Thomas Hardy. And um, his poems are as good as his novels. Um, but I'm, I'm so I'm very impressed that people here are interested in all the hybrids and all the possible... Um, yes, because yeah, often when you 
well, I shouldn't say this, but it seems like in some at some in some programs or universities, it's very specialized, isn't it? And, That's right. And writers are sort of encouraged sometimes to think of themselves in a particular category, which seems crazy because you know if you you think about it, it's like writers write, and so <laughs> why, right. why don't we just uh, yeah have a go at everything? And, I mean, you have talents maybe in some areas, but if you why not be open to the and and the hybrid will make something perhaps even a new form. That's right. And the discipline that's employed in all the genres are helps you in your main one, no matter what it is. So I'm surprised that more programs don't emphasize uh, the challenges of the other genres. And, and here at Michigan, anyway, it seems as if it's not, not so divided that, that the fiction writers do... Uh, Play with, <laughs> play with the poets, and they and they all uh, they're all interested in each other's work. And that's very healthy and very good. Yes, and I should say because because we're we're sort of piecing together your bio as we go here, mm-hmm. Lynn, um, is that you're a, um, a a poet, an essayist, and a playwright. That's right. Right. And so, uh, have you, since we just mentioned it, dabbled in fiction at all, or is that, are those, are three things enough to sort of <laughs> occupy your time? Well, would that I had the. Uh, the courage and the stamina to do <laughs> to do a, a whole novel, but it uh, it's just there's no white space. You can't take a breather. It's continuous. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> so, so no, uh, playwriting seemed to uh, I've always longed to be a novelist. I love to read novels, but um, it's beyond me. But the um, play is such a nice. It, for a poet, anyway, coming to it, it, it allows you to have all the exhilaration that a fiction writer must feel about making characters who actually live and breathe and walk across the stage. But on the page, you get all that white space that poets need. So it's uh, both exhilarating because you're in a new structure and a new form, but it's also there's a little enough element of the familiar simply because of the white space to make you feel that you're not completely overwhelmed. Because those big blocks of sentences of prose that prose writers do, that's, I, for me, that takes a different circuitry in the brain altogether. So even though people like Nick Dalbanco and Laura Kosicki say, oh, yes, I go from one to the other, and uh, you could do it too, think, no way. <laughs> I don't know how they can go from one to the other so fluidly. Um, it's that's true because Laura does everything, doesn't she? she? Does with the screen, yeah, like she's the. I don't. I don't know if she's done screenwriting, but her her books have been made into to movies. So maybe she's consulted or done it. Yeah. And um, Eileen also does yes. more than one genre. And I think just about everyone there. Linda Gregerson too. She writes. Uh, well, she writes big scholarly books and essays and poetry. And I, I just think that's amazing that people are so free to reinvent themselves when they get tired of one genre and go to the next, or just. I think that's a, a great strength. And so when you, to begin, as we said, you've been here the week, Lynn, and um, on Monday, that was day one. Right. And, and that was when your play, uh, Bird Sanctuary, uh, hit the stage. And, <laughs> and so you had a director and some players right. here with you. Right. That, and you've worked with them before? Um, the director directed an, a different cast back in December for a stage reading in Chicago, and then um, three actors changed. They became available. And um, so he rehearsed with them several weeks before we came up to Michigan. So um, I'd heard them in rehearsal twice, but this was the first time I got to see them, you know, the women with their lipstick on and, <laughs> and you know, and the men dressed in a, a you know, shirt that buttons. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was great to see it in a more formally staged thing. And it, it, it was great. And afterwards there was a talk back and um, people asked very penetrating, interesting questions, and the conversation carried over to the next day. So it, it was a thrill for me. And everyone participated in that, um, the, the talk pack then, like the, the you had the voices of the director as well as the, the oh, actors. Yes. And, yes. and some of the questions would be directed specifically to the actors. One of the main questions that I found intriguing um, was uh, one of the actresses, the one who had to, she had to have a fake Irish accent all the way through it. And she, she did a wonderful job of it. Um, 
and she's well, I say fake Irish accent because in the, the character in the play is American who's faking an Irish accent. So. Oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> so, so it really is not just that. right. So even though she'd worked with a dialect coach, she was careful not to be too good because the character's not supposed. Anyway, there was degrees of difficulty in, in that. But um, the she was the one who said stage readings are more difficult than uh, to do a real performance, or not a real performance, but to do a, a full production. And people in the audience were really interested about why that should be. And uh, then the director and some of the other cast members talked about the necessity of feeding off one another when you're on the stage, because it, every performance, of course, is different. And, and you need the energy. You need to be able to look at each other. And, and the body language is so important. So when you're sitting there with a piece of paper... And in my play, you look straight at the audience for one time scene, and then you shift and turn. When you're in, in the couple relationship, you shift and turn and talk to one another. And so it's only by head turning that they were able to, um, to demonstrate to the audience that they are now in a different moment talking to their wife, their husband, their girlfriend, etc. And um, so for some of them, it was complicated because... All their impulses are to memorize their lines and turn and act to the other and react. And the piece of paper would sort of was a reminder that there's a fourth element here. Right, right. I get another. Oh, that is interesting. I mean, it makes sense from the actor's point of view, but in a way you would think, it wouldn't it always be nice to have that piece of paper as yeah, your crutch? such a crutch, I would crutch. think. <laughs> but they're like, no, it gets in the way of my art. I don't yeah, need a crutch it does. for that. And also, it's also interesting, from because I'm a novice playwright, to watch oh, rehearsals. And to see, you know, I ask them sometimes, um, how do you act when you can't use your body? How do you act when you're sitting down? And they said, uh, a couple of them said that they had, back way back when they were taking acting classes, one of the exercises they'd have to do is to sit on their hands and keep their eyebrows down and have to act totally with inflection in their voice. They couldn't raise their shoulders, but most of all, they couldn't. Uh, furrow their brows. They couldn't grimace with their face because that would locate all the energy away from the, the voice. voice. And so um, they learned from the beginning that there are ways to act with well, diction. Well, how did you get interested, Lynn? How did you make the move to writing this play then? Because you say you're a, you're a novice. This is your your first. It's um, my second, second. Uh, it's a, well, it's my first staged long play. I uh, had a, a full production of a short play um, in New York previously um, as part of a festival at the Manhattan Theater Source. But this was the first, but it only ran for a week. It was part of a festival. But this was the first time I had a much longer piece. Um, so all of this is still thrilling to me. All, you know, all I want to do is find out all the you know, theater superstitions and <laughs> and how it's... Did it's, you have a longer poem? Is that Was that the genesis of moving to some sort of play or was it a completely, you know, looking at a, a, a blank page and just for some reason thinking the idea that you were, that was coming to you, the best vehicle for it would be a, a play? Um, gosh, that's kind of hard. I think I felt like I'd run out of gas when I finished, a, uh, when I finished Sentimental Standards. And I don't know how it is for most people, but most people I know, when they finish a book, they have that sort of sinking blank space, I'll never write again, you know, the world has closed down. Um, and for me, the best way is to, um, well, this time was to, to read something else in a different structure. And I started reading a lot of plays. Who were you reading? I was reading a lot of Simon Gray and Harold Pinter and David Harold. Uh, because so much of my background is in British literature, I was just naturally gravitate to the Brits. Carol Churchill. So I think, God, I want to be able to do that. I would love the, I love the whole idea of making dialogue itself be the propulsive instrument. That dialogue is what carries everything, all the information, all the backstory, all the conflict, tension, um, all the mystery. And once you start writing dialogue, as you know, since you've written dialogue, it's, it's too intoxicating not to do it. So it's a different kind of thrill. Intoxicating. Yes. A thrill. That's, oh, it's lovely to hear you speak about it because I think everyone probably, maybe some listeners are thinking, I'm going to pick up the pen or get to the computer and... <laughs> 
happy become people talk intoxicated. To each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See what happens. And so this, and so to fill in a little bit more of your biography for a, a quick moment. So you, you were in Missouri. You were teaching yes. at the the University of Missouri Columbia, right? Uh, for a good twenty years, right? And then you've just you and your you've just moved to Chicago, right? My husband and I retired from the University of Missouri Columbia and uh, decided that we wanted to live in a city while we still could walk <laughs> and while we could still benefit. You have many years of walking ahead of you, Lynn. <laughs> Let's hope. Uh, while we could still appreciate the energy of a city. And, um, and it's been wonderful. We've only been there six months, so it's, it's, we're still in the honeymoon phase, but it's wonderful. We you know, ride all day and then take breaks and walk around the city all day. So. Oh, that does sound... Well, yeah. well, lots actually, of theater. Lo- oh, oh, that's lovely. Right down, right down down there. Well, let's take a break, okay. and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and Lynn McMahon is um, on the program today. We'll be back. Four strong winds that blow lonely Seven seas that run high All these things that won't change Come what may Well, our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you If I'm ever back this way Think I'll go out to Alberta Weather's good there in the fall Got some friends that I could go working for Yet I wish you'd change your mind If I ask you one more time But we've been through this A hundred times or more Four strong winds that blow lonely Seven seas that run high All these things that won't change Come what may Well, our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way snow flies and if things are looking good you could meet me if I sent you down the fair but by then it would be winter not much for you to do and the winds can sure blow cold away out there Strong winds that blow lonely seven seas. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Lynn McMahon is joining us. Poet, essayist, playwright, Lynn McMahon. And thanks to Jesse Johnston for being an intrepid engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Thanks, Jesse. Um, Lynn, so before we go any further, we've been talking a little bit about this little bit about your life and, and some projects, but let's hear a couple of poems, if you don't mind. 
Okay. We were just talking about, um, you asked me why, um, how I got interested in playwriting after, since I've been a poet for 35 years. Um, and one of my one of my first responses, which isn't quite true, is that well, in playwriting, you can do you can be much bitchier, you can be more sarcastic, you can you can have people fighting, um, which you sort of miss in poetry if you're writing just in a lyric voice, as I usually am. <laughs> right. You you want to have somebody duke it out a bit, and it doesn't seem the right arena. I mean, our 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 my anyway training in, as a lyric poet was that you know this you make this intricately boxed pretty thing and. Um, and uh, but I, I know that's not true. I know poetry can do anything. Uh, that that there is no no strictures against duking it out in a poem. It just wasn't something I was able to do. But then when I uh, looked back at some of my poems, the one I'm going to read now, it did seem that I could manage some um, snapshot of the culture at the moment, perhaps. And this poem I'm going to read um, from from a sequence called In the American Grain, uh, the first poem called No Damascus, um, I might have a little bit of the um, bitchy sarcasm that I uh, was afraid I wouldn't get to explore enough <laughs> in poetry <laughs> that, that perhaps it, was, it has been there all along, perhaps. Um, I don't know if uh, you, have this, you have this in a... The thing about growing up in a liberal college town like Ann Arbor, like Columbia, Missouri, is that everyone is rather hip, that there aren't any really flaming, um, well, I, I wouldn't use the word, but the, there aren't any, aren't too many noticeable um, thuggish <laughs> sort of politically incorrect things going on. So I was very surprised one day to see this car with unmufflered, very loud, noisy car come by, and on the bumper sticker said, no fat chicks. And that's something I hadn't heard since I was in high school, since I hadn't heard since 1968. And where did you go to high school, Lynn? Just um, to Shreveport, Louisiana. So Louisiana. So from yeah. you're born and raised in the South. Like you're uh, pretty much raised in the South, yes. So um, it just start me thinking that... Um, no fat chicks. I mean, where was this guy from? And what kind of ethos was he trying to bring back? And, and you wish he had a muffler <laughs> in more than one way. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> he needed to be muffled. And, and so this first poem is about um, thinking how it was that, that girls were received when I was growing up. 30 years ago from the time I wrote this poem and what it is now and how weird to suddenly have this deja vu that no fat chicks was making a, a reappearance. So um, that's this, the background for this poem. I caught this evening evening's genie epoxied to the chrome and light sensitive fluorescent script repeating in each headlight sweep no fat chicks, no fat chicks. Unegged, unknifed, not yet set aflame or painted out, a crud anomalous even in the 60s when I saw it first and felt along the viscera what 17 was going to mean. This is what boys say, gash, quim, twat, and snatch. Almost a nursery rhyme, though it wasn't then. Like Emily Dickinson's continuous conversions out of Calvin and back again, wild nights, wild nights, depended on the driver's whim. Driver, for whom all flesh is dross and all entry blocked, who will stay to redeem you now? No hitchhiker will wave you down. There's no grace abounding, no future town. So what I'm hoping that the poem says is, uh, you, this guy has no future. <laughs> if it, he thinks that he's going to get some sort of attention that will lead to something, um, but our town was too polite to throw eggs at him or, you know, set his car on fire or, uh, you know, that it was just let him drive away. But um, mm. what was he thinking? Yeah, uh, he came through town maybe to shake things up and... And no one bit. And, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that it's not as if, like, uh, later on in the, the book, then there's an, oh, just saw him drive by again. So right. that's good, at least. <laughs> at least He's yeah. gone. He and his bumper sticker kept on. Yeah, I always liked that bumper sticker. Um, I got a gun for my wife, pretty good trade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's oh. at least witty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, especially if you put on somewhat un- unsuspecting person's car. That's right. right. Like the one, um, I, I think this was actually a country music song, maybe. You know, um, How can I miss you if you won't go away? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, exactly. or thank God and Greyhound, you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love Greyhound. You would just like to it's like a touchstone somehow yes. for a living writer. <laughs> Usually a Greyhound moment. Um, and that was what the poem um, was from your book, The House of Entertaining Science. Right. Um, and and these are put out by David R. Godin. That's he's been your publisher um, basically for since, years since from your second book on. Yes. And um, and why can we talk about that for a moment? Like the choice for. Sure. Because your first book came out with um, Wesleyan Press, mm-hmm. and then so what is this a choice that you made con- consciously as a poet, like to to choose a press, find one, and then kind of go through your career with the press? Yes, I think once you find, you're very lucky if you find a home, um, because the publishing world is you know they're as underfunded as anyone else, and it's face it, poetry's a lost leader, isn't it? <laughs> they don't make any money on poetry books. Uh, I think with David Godin, um, I, th- I think he told me t- one time that it's cookbooks that keep them alive. And I know that um, I know that Jonathan Galassi at Farrar Strauss um, said that, um, I think he was publishing Scott Turow, you know, the big novelist who, who will sell gazillion, and that will, uh, that will keep maybe three or four poetry titles um, alive. But so whatever, so it's always, um, it's not exactly a charitable impulse, but it's close to that on the publisher's side. It's, it's because they love poetry that they'll publish it. So if you find um, an editor like Godin, David Godin, who loves poetry, you're so lucky. So, and also he does beautiful books. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, I was delighted to, to stay with them. So, um, and, and is, are they, is Godin, is he involved in the process? Cause we've, Yes, uh, he is. If, with you, like, so there's a, you, you'll give him a manuscript and yes. then you'll have and then a conversation about it? Or yes, I'll give him the manuscript and he makes the decision. So it's not that what do you mean? send it out. What, what do you mean? Well, in some places you, you hope to get to the publisher editor slash editor, but usually it goes through a series oh, of readers who... He's the one, make, he, he reads he'll it make first, the decision, basically, yeah. 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 But but it's always your decision about what the poems will look like. Oh, I yes. guess that's what I was missing. <laughs> I was oh, getting yes. defensive on your behalf for no reason at all, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yes, um, he makes the decision. And um, he's not the kind that says, uh, I don't like that poem, take that out. Or he, he, He's very hands-off as far as the material goes. So it's the perfect combination. Yes. Yeah, well, that's a, and and how much um, since we're talking about sort of the the nuts and bolts here, because um, I I loved how on uh, the devolution of the nude you had a Joseph Cornell collage that was yes. you chose. Now, did you choose that or no? Was my that husband a- found that. My um, my husband said this would make a great cover for your book, and then he chose also the House of Entertaining Science cover. And then David Godin was the one who designed Sentimental Standards, which I think is a beautiful cover. He wanted it to look something like a 1950s vinyl jazz album. And it does. It does, it I, does. I believe. Yeah. 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 So it really does what he wanted the, it to do. Yes. Yeah. Because so. of the Sentimental Standards. Sentimental Standards, yeah. Oh, dear. I need to drink more coffee some days, <laughs> uh, for sure. Because um, I noticed that in one of your poems, too, you had said, Lynn, uh, you made a reference to Leonardo da Vinci. Uh-huh. And so I wondered if that was in your family, like if, if, there, if art was a big, or if your husband, in fact, was, um, if he was sort of an artist, uh, painter, or in that realm. And so it was a... Um, well, my husband's um, uh, a poet and essayist oh, and has written some plays, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. So he's done everything as well. He's done everything. <laughs> and, to um, read more. <laughs> but he knows a lot more about art than I do. And he has, in fact, if he has, um, if he has an extra bit of money, it'll go to an art book more likely than almost anything else. So he has lots of art books in the house, and um, he particularly likes the sketchbooks of Leonardo. So. Oh, and because we, and also when you were saying um, when you were describing your idea of the lyric lyric poetry, and then you said um, 
the, like a pretty boxed thing is mm-hmm. like a phrase that came to you. And I thought, oh, that connects right to Joseph Cornell, really, yeah. isn't it? Not, and uh, yes, and, and then you, I hope, if it's a good poem, that'll have that sort of Cornell-like surprise that the juxtapositions are unusual and unpredictable and that's the tension between them that yields some other thing. Yes, thank you. Yes. Well, let's, you know what, let's take, um, let's take a short break and we'll come back, Lynn, and, um, and we'll, because, because I'd like you to read another couple poems for us. Before we do go, I wanted to mention an upcoming event. Uh, Tech Sound is launching this coming Saturday. Will you be in town still, Lynn? Yeah. I leave Saturday morning, <laughs> oh, unfortunately. Okay, because otherwise we get in a car and we'll go to Ipsy. Um, it's Tech Sound is launching at uh, the Dreamland Theater in Ypsilanti, April 5th. Uh, let's see, at 8 o'clock, and that's on 26 North Washington Street in Ypsilanti, as I said. That's Tech Sound, and you can go to their website uh, and check it out, techsound.org. All right, you're listening to Living Writers with Lynn McMahon. We'll be right back. Where the road is dark And the seed is sown Where the gun is cocked As the bullets cold Where the miles are marked In the blood and the gold I'll meet you farther on Up the road Got on my dead man's suit And my smiling skull ring My lucky graveyard boots And a song to sing I got a song to sing It keeps me out of the cold And I'll meet you further on Up the road Further on up the road Further on up the road Where the way is dark And the night is cold One sunny morning We'll rise, I know And I'll meet you further on Up the road Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to Living Writers. Today in the studio, Lynn McMahon. Um, Lynn, are you going to read us another poem from the House of Entertaining Science? Yes, I thought I would read um, what I... Yes, I think I will read a a poem that is... um, It's called These Same, These Many Birds, and it's one in which the rhythms are so noticeably poetic um, that I thought I would I'm not particularly a formal poet but it was my chance to see if I could do the the easy swoop and downing flake of so so to speak of um, of basing a poem iambically um, it's not perfect um, iambic pentameter by any means uh, but I think you can hear in certain phrasings that that's the shadow um, I'm working under it's called these same these many birds These same, these many birds that daily skim the railings of the deck and wait their turn at the shallow bath, or wait dispersal at the grackle's crack of black command and then come back, won't break their pledge to keep me fixed on degrees of home and distances. The parabola their tree to house to feeder makes, though sketched on air, remains cross-hatched by each day's partial looping back, a record I log each evening at the sink in sinking geometries of my own. These same, these many birds drag the ragged hem of light to earth, then fold their hollow bones. Are there birds there where you are in the dark? Heart, this skein of thought flings out to net and bring you near. Husband, your wife, the night jars call before the fall, the fall, the fall. 
Oh, thank you. Mm. I'm so I'm happy you I'm so happy you read that one because I think that's one of the the pages that I also dog-eared here. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. Thank you for reading that, Lynn. So birds. Um, <laughs> so birds. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about birds? <laughs> Do you have any bird calls up your sleeve? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm a poor mimic. <laughs> Why, why do ver- birds, um, uh, as an image, uh, occur to you in your work? Gosh, um, now that you've said that, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to go back and <laughs> or go forward and think, no more birds. It's like, no! It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lyric tick, isn't it? Like the moon. I mean, how, how do poets manage without birds and the moon? You know, you just... Uh, can you do it again? Can you... Uh, can you do earth, stone, water, air? I don't know. Um, in my uh, defense, if I, no, <laughs> I need to be defend, I don't uh, mean to attack you. No, 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 of course not. Uh, our kitchen sink faced directly faced a bird feeder, and there were millions of birds all the time. And um, um, and we always had the bird books right next to the sink, so we could try identification. But um, why birds of well the you know, the bird in the hall, the sparrow in the hall, the uh, the idea that the the bird flies through the window and out the other window, and in that brief span is all you have. The so it's it's long been around, and it's so heavily f- symbolically freighted that no, you cannot get away with a bird in a poem. I'm I, I'm going to go back and ex- excise them all. No, no. <laughs> down with the birds and the moon. <laughs> <laughs> then sign them to the past where they belong. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Keith Taylor right now is saying, No, keep the birds in. <laughs> I actually I, I fancy the birds in the poem too. I didn't I it's funny because I, I don't it must be a blind spot for me because I definitely can pick out the moon poems, you know, that's oh, yes. quite, you know, glaring. But with the birds I seem to always welcome them whenever they make <laughs> sort of a cameo or if they're central to the poem. Um that's good. Yeah, that's good. Some, yeah. It's, it's interesting to think what, it, like, if, but if it means, because, like you said, it's like we almost inherit with one of these images this weightedness about it, what it right. could mean. But I was Which wondering. Which is why you can't say Skylark or Nightingale. Oh, God forbid. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Grackle, maybe. It's got a good sound quality. Yeah, it's got a cackle, and it's, it's obviously contemporary. You know, you're not going to write something euphonious about the grackle. So <laughs> I think I think that one's okay. But but I wondered if you had like if it meant if you were aware of it meaning something separate in whatever your like your own individual mythology is or or your families that you built built you know because because there seems to be your. I, I mentioned your family um, uh, because they, they make appearances throughout the, yes, their three do. books. Right. Uh, and, and we almost see Zach grow up in a way. That's true. Um, so it's not that I'm, I'm just pulling the, um, you're a woman poet, so obviously <laughs> you've got family. <laughs> you know, not that. Um, as, as listeners will know who have read your books, um, for sure. Um, but I just wondered if the birds did, did have a specific... Resonance, well, but we can go away from the birds. <laughs> well, well, actually, they do um, because we lived on an acre, and there was always sort of bird catastrophes around. And my husband would always bring in um, partial decomposed birds and um, wings, in particular. Um, so, on his workbench in the garage, there would often be wings. Um, he wanted to look at very carefully at the, the skeletal structure, mm-hmm. and but but particularly with wings, with the um, the striations of the feathers themselves and the, it was just um, an object of scientific curiosity for him so yes there was a lot of bird bits <laughs> this has taken a, a surprising turn for me <laughs> so beside, beside the well ones <clears throat> doing their arabesques uh, outside the window there would always be the, the fallen and <clears throat> yes the fallen in, in, in pieces in the, on the garage Workbench, right? Oh, so okay. right. But but of course you you need only to touch lightly on a bird and it becomes an angel. So it's it, it's all together too heavily poetic. <laughs> well, yeah. well, Lynn, would you um? Well, let's talk a little bit because that also came from the House of Entertaining Science. Is there like what was the what was because it if that that phrase it comes towards the end of the book. Um, 
where you're you're actually I believe talking about Anna Akhmatova. Is I it? am. Yes. Yes. And so, um, so how did you choose? Was this something when you were putting this book together? This 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 group of poems, this this book, um, which is divided um, just for listeners um, by into three sections. Yeah. Um, is it was it something that you always knew was going to be the the unifier, or 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 did it come when you? I think I always knew that it would be the last poem um, because, um, well, because it's long, fairly long, and because it gets at so many of the themes perhaps that were in the rest of the book and because I could center it around our family, but what our family is reading in it at the time. Um, My husband was reading Leonardo and I was reading Akhmatova and Hopkins and Ben, who was... I can't remember how old he was, but he was he was always reading myth. Um, and, and Zach was reading and Batman, and Zach right? was reading Batman. Okay. So, um, and Zach insisted that Batman was as worthy a summer project as any, um, which we agreed with. But, of course, his brother poo-pooed the notion that you could seriously discover Batman. Although I think Ben's now a Batman fan because of Zachary's summer of the bat. So it, influence works both ways. And yeah, and yeah, spare a thought for the bat situation, yeah. right? In That's the Northeast, but anyway. Yeah, what is that with the bats? What, is it a disease? Like, yes, I, you know, I need to know more about it probably before I talk about it on the radio, but they, they're having like a little whiteness appear on their nose and they're, they're, they're dying. So, geez, you know what? We are kind of going towards morbid things today, aren't we? Well, the honeybees, you know, have been decimated. Yes. Um, it could again be the sonar as, as part of it. Who knows? Wow. Bees and bats, we need both of those. Yes. Bats eat the mosquitoes. Uh, We'll Uh, be in for it. That's right. Right. (laughs) A nice nice alliteration there. When to get back to (laughs) us. So some sort of fungus on the nose of the bat, huh? Some whiteness of some sort. Yeah, but I will maybe stay tuned, <laughs> listeners. I'll email you, Lynn, and I, maybe you. I'll bring up the the bat thing once. <laughs> I shouldn't have brought it up. Actually, <laughs> it's not the nature hour. <laughs> maybe one day. Well, Lynn, do you have a poem that you'd like to read for us to before the break? Um. All right. You're uh, paging through sentimental standards. Yes. Uh, no. Um. Since. Often it comes up, is there, can you read a poem blind and, well, I suppose you can't, but if, if it, the poem doesn't, isn't, if you don't know the author of the poem, can you read it and tell if it's a woman's poem or a man's poem? And Great. Let's and, talk about this. And is, are you a woman poet? So, well, yes. So are you identified then as for female things? And after a few years, I was just sort of getting sick of thinking about it and sick of talking about it and sick of the whole notion. So I wrote, well, hell yes, I'll just write a female poem. <laughs> I will write a poem about my uterus, uh, about <laughs> hysterectomy, and, and let's just see what kind of uh, biological um, point of view there might be. So the poem is called Bliss, and I don't mean it ironically. It really is wonderful to have your uterus taken out of you. Um, that... Um, a hysterectomy is, uh, you know, it's a great thing. <laughs> we, we, okay. okay. So it's called Bliss. Lovely to have snipped out of you the part that doesn't work and heal over whole. So tidy and democratically done. Anyone's body freshly washed and offered up or down. Tilted, the anesthetist said, so the bowel can float back and leave the uterus clear. Lovely to sink into that any-woman anonymity, numb at the extremities and dry-mouthed, a kind of mallet with a rubber ball attached to shove down the gullet to block any bile moving up. To be part of a percentage so grandly successful, even the hysterics quiet, whiling away their prehysterectomy time in calming contemplation of their navels, which, soon to be laparoscopically pierced, regears the navel conceit, with each interior periscope sighting. No whitened knuckles here. The IV dreaming has begun, and the womb-weary traveler, pardon this last Homeric pun, is fetched up on the shores of Ithaca by her husband's particularizing kiss. Um, as you probably know, the um, etymology of, hyster- 
of hysteria is womb wanderer. And it's, um, it's very interesting that um, the old doctors, um, if you complained of angina or what we consider um, heart fibrillations, it was because the womb had come unmoored and floated up into the chest. And if you had terrible headaches, well, then your uterus had floated up into your head, into your brain. <laughs> oh, my God. And the only way to drive them back, to drive it back down, was they'd have elixir of tar. They'd have really nasty things that you could drink that would try and get the uterus back into place. So that, to weight it back down. <laughs> to weight it back down. And, um, and if Then that, a good leaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if that didn't work... Uh, they recommended childbirth that that would definitely anchor the uterus where it would be, and your your angina would disappear, and your migraines, et cetera. So, um, and then you'd be fully a woman at any rate. That's again. right. <laughs> that's right. And just think, wow, it's just uh, terrifying to think what it must have been like um, to put yourself in the hands of. Uh, well, it's terrifying any time to put yourself in the hands of the unknown and whatever medical treatments there are. But uh, so it was re- reassuring to me that. Um, uh, the the success rate is sky high, like 99%. So you think, ah, oh, this is not elixir of tar, and this is not um, it's not the old ways. Thank um, goodness. Yes. That's, well, let's, Lynn, let's take a short break, okay. and we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor Living Writers. I couldn't manage the problems I laid on myself And it just made it worse when I laid them on somebody else So I finally surrendered it all, brought down in despair I cried out for help And I felt a warm comforter there And I came to believe In a power much higher than I I came to believe That I needed help to get by In childlike faith I gave in and gave him a try And I came to believe In a power much higher than I afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Lynn McMahon in the studio. Um, thanks again to Jesse Johnston for engineering um, and for Johnny Cash for crooning. <laughs> um, and so, uh, before I forget, I wanted to mention uh, that Lynn McMahon will be reading tomorrow, that's Thursday, at 5 o'clock 
a forum hall in the Palmer Common. So it'll be a poetry reading because we've had we've had the performance of the play on Monday, and so tomorrow poems. Will you be reading from Sentimental Standards, Lynn, or or will it be new work as well, or what? It will be primarily Sentimental Standards and the House of Entertaining Science. So, um, I thought since I um, read poems that are not particularly um, sweet before that I should try and read something maybe that's, um, well, maybe uh, a love poem. But then I don't know if, um, if that... If that means then that I'm a woman poet, um, I think that what does it mean to be a woman poet that you write about love, that you write about your children, that you write about flowers um, and birds and birds. A moon, perhaps. Unicorns. (laughs) You my pretty pony. Um, I don't, you know, there's no reason that, that women's subjects are not also men's subjects. Um, and certainly men write love poems and always have. Um, but there still is a lingering, I think, expectation when you pick up a book of women's poems that there will be something, that you're already looking for a particular thing. Things that are relationship-driven yes, in some respect. I yeah. think so. Um, domestic in some way. Mm. Um, and But it's completely your sensibility that... There are only a few themes in the world, frankly, and uh, everything after that is execution. How you put your words together, how you burnish a phrase, how your images detonate on the page. So it's then that seems to me completely beyond gender. That's a, a third thing that the the poet, the artist, the writer, the uh, the musician is in that wonderfully privileged and um, ecstatic place where those categories fall away. So even though I might be guilty of that too, picking up a book of poems by a woman and expecting perhaps to see birds and flowers and domestic, it, it's, that's just a given. And after that, it's the, the power of the language that takes over. Because I think readers of poems, well, there's as many readers of poems as there are uh, readers of novels, I'm sure, different kinds. Um, yeah, not in numbers. Not in numbers, definitely. <laughs> but no. maybe one day, <laughs> dreamer. <laughs> that there'd be as various in their, in their expectations of a poem. But um, maybe there is something to the voyeuristic notion that we're getting the truth in a book of poems, and so we really can't find out about our life, and it brings out some sort of voyeuristic thing in us. Whereas when you open a novel, you expect it to be made up, of course, that it's invented. So uh, maybe there's still some of that, that it's not so much male or female as the genre itself, that poetry goes right to the heart of the matter, and it's real, and it's authentic, and it's uh, true. Nevertheless, that's, you know, that's crazy, (laughs) because it's all, in some ways, yes, poetry comes from character, of course, and so there's the the truth of that, but it's all told slant. It's all oblique, and um, it's not the obvious surface truth of a poem. Is not the truth itself, right? Right? Because, right. like, look at a James Tate poem, for example. Right. You know, you're probably not walking through town with a goat, the Prince of Peace, or <laughs> right? Right. right. But there's a truth to that, like right. the community, and yeah, yes, exactly. But it's nice. I love to hear where you say that it's something that, because um, I do believe, like that 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 art obviously transcends like that a gender assignment mm-hmm. whatever it, it is going to be said is going to be said that uh, I mean I'm not trying to say that doesn't have to that it can't be in there because people write whatever you want to write people right. <laughs> but, right. but you don't have to saddle yourself with some sort of gender expectation or and I, th- I think also that um, that of, of the highest caliber um, the the meaning not to use an overused word, um, but the the complexity of the poem, of the painting, of the music, of the novel changes um, 
with each reader too. It's not let paraphrasable or it's it, not yes. It's with with the audience, when you're writing your poems, was that when you moved to the plays? Yes. Lynn, was it noticeably when you were working on the creating? Was it noticeably different for you, or did you Very. feel like it was? Very. And part of it was because um, I w- wanted to move to something maybe plain. Um, to have people actually talk like they really talk and not in a poetic diction and to change register and to see what kind of challenge and intensity that yields. What are the tools you use if you don't use metaphor? Um, For a poet who relies on rhyme and chiming down the page and and the lyric and the lyric and even the pentameter bass, what happens when you don't have all those in your arsenal anymore. Uh, sort of stripped in a way. Yeah, so uh, the, that's part of the exhilaration too, that you make that you make conversation or you make dialogue, even though it could be very pithy and pointed and, it, and it'll be quick and it, you don't, you can't have a character suddenly coming up with this beautifully burnished image. It will stop that, the forward movement of the play and the play is in real time. It's being really performed. And that's completely different from our approach to a poem, which is outside of time and, in fact, arrests time moments. So you, when you enter the, the page of the poem, you're in a different frame of reference altogether, and, it, and, the, and the poem surrounds you, and it, it takes you. But when you're on the stage and when, or when you're writing a play, there's audience, there's people, there's um, community, and it's a completely different impulse um, so I'm, yes, does that answer your question? Lynn, <laughs> what, will you come back another time and for another time read the love poem? Yes. And then we'll, we'll do that, shall we? Then? Yes. Okay. Cause then we won't, we won't be like squeezed, right. trying to squeeze it in at the end here. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, that does answer. I, I love that. That was, that was wonderful what you just said. And, um, thank you for joining me today on living writers. Thank you for and, having me. And for, um, well, you know what? We actually do have a couple minutes even though it was so nice what we were doing. I was thinking we had so many announcements that I was going to have to natter on for a good <laughs> four minutes. Um, well, where, where is your love poem? Do you have it there, that you, the one that you wanted to read? Now that I'm, like, I've taken it away. and now <laughs> <laughs> While you're looking for it, I could say, everyone listening, thanks for listening. And remember that Lynn will be reading poems uh, in person tomorrow at the Palmer Commons uh, at Forum Hall. And that's at 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock that's Thursday, five o'clock, right? uh, poetry reading. Um, and then also tonight, if, you, uh, if you're at Loose Ends, or in fact, if you're not, change your plans and go here. Uh, Jeff Parker and Janet Kaufman, they'll be reading uh, on a double bill over in Ipsy. So you could check out uh, that great reading uh, with Jeff Parker and Janet Kaufman. Uh, and again, on Saturday, head to Ipsy again for Tech Sound for their launch party. Um, over there, techsound.org. Well, well, you know what? Let's just keep it for another time because it's like as if like with Hemingway writing to the, like in mid-sentence. That's so right. we'll, we'll come back uh, when you, well, if you will, if you, <laughs> if you would come back, Lynn, I shouldn't assume anything. I would anything. love to come um, back. And so <laughs> then we'll take it from there with that, with that love poem. And uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll have a whole string of them and we won't talk about um, death and, and we'll bird We'll find out pieces. about those bats. Okay. And yeah, I'll, we'll give you the bat update. Okay. Well, um, Thank thanks. Thanks for listening. Ann Arbor. Thanks for streaming. Uh, Chicago, Florida, uh, Seattle, uh, Bermuda. I won't keep going around the planet. Uh, thanks again to Jesse Johnston. We're going to go out, um, Lynn, on a little gamelan. Excellent. Um, uh, Jesse and Alex Bellhodge, they actually play the gamelan. So uh, we're, we'll go out with some of music that they're not playing on personally. Uh, but anyway, uh, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, you've been listening to Living Writers. We've got sports next. Lynn, I'm sorry. I should have said
Sports Report. You can do it all night long! On 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Here on WCBN, Rushi Vias in studio with Kevin Gregus, Gordon Chaffin, and special guest today, Stuart Zoss. Decided to stop by the studio. He was in the area. So we're going to start off with some Michigan news. And Gordon, he's got that. No, Kevin's got that for us. Okay, Michigan. um, Start off today with saying the the softball game has been canceled today. It's supposed to be playing at 3 o'clock. So against Central Michigan. No, I'm sorry. They were not playing. That's the baseball team that's playing Central Michigan. The softball team was supposed to be playing Bowling Green. That game has been canceled due to Wet ground. So weather outside, uh, if you're around Ann Arbor, is absolutely gorgeous. So it's sunny, 50 degrees out, gorgeous weather. Well, the beautiful, problem, beautiful weather for baseball. The problem is, is this, the fields and the grounds are not in good shape. Well, um, not in good shape. There's no grass down. There's no grass down. As, as you know, the, the, the like baseball stadium, the baseball stadium and the softball stadium have been going, have been 